one of the questions that comes up when you read Elizabeth's side of the correspondence is whether she's being simply responsive to Descartes and doing nothing but taking up a skeptical attitude and raising objections, or whether there's some kind of systematic unity or development of a view in her own side of the correspondence. And um, I was trying to figure that out. Um, I think it was a real interpretive question as to what was going on. And um, I think in many cases, certainly with respect to the nature of the mind-body union, she is working her way towards a kind of view that she herself wants to hold that is aligned with certain aspects of Descartes' view. I think she's very sympathetic to his account of the nature of thought as um, involving a kind of autonomy and uh, an exercise of will um, and subjectivity in thinking. But what she was... Um, really struggling to to work out was whether there was a way to preserve that aspect of thought while not postulating a kind of um, mysterious immaterial mind that uh, didn't have uh, explanatory traction. So she wanted to see whether it could be possible to have a materialist account of mind while preserving the subjectivity of thought in, in Descartes' account. And um, those 1643 letters, I think, uh, express that kind of effort to um, thread the needle, as it were, um, in that uh, trying to get that position just right. And in the course of doing that, she presses Descartes on the intelligibility of his own account of his own dualism, his own metaphysical dualism, and whether um, it can account for the nature of a human being. Um, first of all. And uh, secondly, um, as he tries to answer her question, she takes no prisoners. <laughs> um, she doesn't let him get away with a sloppy answer and calls him on inconsist- internal inconsistencies in his own view. So she's clearly read Descartes, thought about it, and understands it in a way that she can hold him accountable for consistency. Um, and it's also interesting to see how his respect for her um, really uh, develops in just those three letters that the beginning, I think he treats her as a student who's smart, but not as smart as he is. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and by the third letter, it's clear he has a deeper respect for her, her acumen, her philosophical acumen. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. You just heard the philosopher Lisa Shapiro explaining her interpretation of the Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia's view on the relationship between human minds and human bodies, which Elizabeth developed through an incisive but friendly critique of Descartes' infamous mind-body dualism. In this episode, we'll discuss how Descartes used a series of intricate arguments to arrive at that dualism in the meditations, and then we'll return to how Elizabeth used one succinct but powerful argument to poke a serious hole in Descartes' view.
As we talked about last week, Descartes borrowed his metaphysical methodology from mathematics. In particular, he set and carefully followed four simple rules of method. First, he resolved to accept only absolute certainties as true, hence the method of doubt, which allowed him to discover what was really absolutely certain. Second, he resolved to break down big problems into simpler parts before attempting to work out solutions. Hence, in Meditation 2, he has the meditator ask, not what is a human being, but what do I know with certainty about myself right now? Relatedly, third, he resolved to build from more easily established truths to more complex truths. Hence, he only tackles big questions like what is a human being after having a bunch of solutions to littler problems in hand. Finally, fourth, he resolved, like any good math student, to constantly go back and check his work in order to make sure he deciduously followed the first three rules. In the third meditation, which is the first thing you read for this week, the meditator discovers that she needs to add a fifth to these four standard rules of method in order to make real progress in metaphysics. The third meditation opens with the meditator working herself back into the meditative mood. Let's join her. Close your eyes, block your ears, withdraw your mind from your senses. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Meditate on reasons for doubt. You don't know with absolute certainty that you're listening to this podcast. You could be dreaming. You don't even know with absolute certainty that 2 plus 3 equals 5. You could be being deceived by an evil demon. Now meditate on what you do know with absolute certainty. You know that you are meditating. That you are doubting. That you are thinking. That you exist. Think about the fact if it is a fact, that this is literally all that you are absolutely certain about. Having re-established the meditative mood, the meditator reflects on how, exactly, she is absolutely certain of the cogito. In so doing, she enunciates what Descartes scholars have come to call the truth rule, the fifth rule of method that she'll need to do metaphysics. The meditator says, quote, For in this first act of knowledge, there is nothing other than a clear and distinct perception of what I affirm to be the case. And this certainly would be insufficient to make me certain of the truth of the matter, if it could ever come to pass that something I perceived so clearly and distinctly was false. 
end quote. In other words, there's nothing that makes the meditator absolutely certain of the cogito, other than the fact that she clearly and distinctly perceives that it must be true. Now, Descartes never gives a definition of clear and distinct perception in the meditations, or in the objections and replied which were published alongside the meditations, except by saying that it's the sort of certainty-yielding perception that we achieve by meditating on whether there are any reasons for doubting the particular thing we're thinking about, while focusing our intellect on that particular thing. So we have an obscure and confused perception, the opposite of a clear and distinct perception, when we are psychologically capable of doubting the thing we're thinking about, even if we're only capable of doubting it while playing the meditator's game. So for example, the truth that I have two hands may seem awfully clear and distinct if I'm not meditating. But I can tell that it's actually obscure and confused, because once I start meditating on the dream argument, I discover that I can doubt that I have two hands, even while staring at them. The truth that I am thinking, on the other hand, cannot be doubted while I'm thinking about it, even if I've successfully doubted and suspended judgment about literally everything else I used to believe. So I clearly and distinctly perceive it to be true. Moreover, Descartes argues that the fact that I clearly and distinctly perceive it to be true means that it must actually be true. Otherwise, the method of doubt would have ended up giving the meditator a reason to doubt even her clear and distinct perception of the fact that she was thinking. Thus, the meditator confidently declares a fifth rule of method, saying, quote, that everything I very clearly and distinctly perceive is true, end quote. So far, so good. The meditator has used the method of doubt to come up with both an axiom, a basic truth, namely the cogito, and to come up with a rule for deriving future truths with absolute certainty. But then she hits a major roadblock. The truth rule vindicates the cogito, since it's indubitable. It does not vindicate the deliverance of the senses, since they are dubitable. Thus far, it seems to fit with the discoveries of the first and second meditations. But here's the rub. It also seems to vindicate simple mathematical truths, which the first meditation was supposed to have already put into doubt. When the meditator considers that 2 plus 3 equals 5, or that triangles have three sides, and really focuses her mind on thinking about those particular mathematical truths, she finds that she's actually unable to doubt them. She clearly and distinctly perceives that 2 plus 3 does equal 5, that triangles do have three sides. That means that those simple mathematical truths would be vindicated by the truth rule. But as the first meditation showed, they're actually dubitable. It's impossible to doubt them while focusing on them. I can't actually imagine a triangle with four sides or two sides while I'm thinking about a triangle but it's nevertheless possible to doubt that triangles have three sides along with all other mathematical truths because clear and distinct perception is fleeting. It's possible to doubt even the most clearly and distinctly perceived mathematical truths when turning one's attention away from the clear and distinct perception itself and towards the fact that God or an evil demon or evolution by natural selection might have made me systematically confused. Wrong to trust my apparently clear and distinct perceptions. 
If this is possible, then however remote a possibility it may be, the Cartesian meditator can't accept the truth rule, for doing so would violate Descartes' first and most important rule of metaphysical method, to accept only absolute certainties as true. The meditator's in a real pickle here, for upon reflection, she realizes that even the cogito can be called into doubt in this manner. The meditator clearly and distinctly perceives that she is thinking. It seems utterly absurd to doubt that she is thinking, that she exists, while she's thinking about the fact that she's thinking, the fact that she exists. While she's doing that, she's psychologically incapable of doubting that she's thinking or that she exists. Nevertheless, when she turns her mind away from direct reflection on the cogito, and instead meditates on the possibility of a malicious god, she finds a perfectly general reason to doubt literally everything she believes, even math, even the cogito. God's omnipotent, all-powerful. He can do anything. So, he can make clear and distinct perception systematically misleading. If a deceitful, omnipotent God exists, the meditator cannot trust even that she is thinking. So how does the meditator get herself out of this pickle? By turning to the other rules of method. Rule number four says to check one's work. The meditator has just done that and realized that she started out on the wrong foot. The cogito and the truth rule were both amazing results but it turns out that she arrived at them too hastily. Rules 2 and 3 stress the importance of adding pieces to one's puzzle of absolute certainty in the right order. In Meditation 2, it sure seemed like the cogito was going to be the right starting piece of the puzzle, and once that piece was down, the truth rule fit naturally right alongside it. But as it turned out, the cogito was the wrong place to start, and so the truth rule hadn't yet been truly vindicated. Instead, the meditator realizes in the third meditation that the real starting piece of the puzzle must be a proof of the existence of a non-deceiving god. If an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent god exists, then there would be no reason to doubt clear and distinct perceptions like the cogito. After all, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good god who created human beings with the faculty for clear and distinct perception wouldn't let that faculty lead humans systematically astray. And such a god wouldn't let evil demons or natural evolutionary processes muck things up either. So Descartes realizes that his first metaphysical task is to prove the existence of the Catholic god and thereby provide a firm and lasting foundation for the truth rule which then can in turn be relied on in the construction of the rest of Descartes' new metaphysics. As a matter of fact, the meditator ends up proving the existence of God not once, but thrice over. Two proofs of God's existence come here in Meditation 3. The other one, the ontological argument, comes in Meditation 5. The meditator also addresses a prominent argument against God's existence, the argument from evil, in Meditation 4. We'll talk about all of that. The next time we're face-to-face, -face, here's what you can expect. We'll run through Descartes' arguments for the existence of God. They're a bit tricky, so PowerPoint visuals will help. For now, I'll just ask you to jump ahead and assume that Descartes has successfully proven the existence of God in Meditations 3 through 5, and thereby vindicated the truth rule. Everything we clearly and distinctly perceive 
is true. It must be true, because an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, God exists, and that God wouldn't let our pure intellects deceive us. So with the assumption in hand that the truth rule is undergirded by solid proofs of God's existence. Here's some notes on the reading, yep. I said notes on the reading. Meditation 6 opens with the meditator turning her attention to material things, and indeed directly to her own body. In the previous meditations, she's taken herself to have definitively proven the existence of God, and thereby guaranteed that everything she clearly and distinctly perceives is true. Putting that truth rule to use, she's clearly and distinctly perceived that she exists as a thinking thing, as well as that God exists as a thinking thing. She's also clearly and distinctly perceived the fundamental axioms of mathematics, thereby reclaiming some of what was doubted in the first meditation. In particular, she's reclaimed those beliefs that were put into doubt by the evil demon argument. But she's not yet reclaimed any of the beliefs put into doubt by the dream argument, whether she's wearing a robe and sitting in a stove-heated room before a fire, for instance. Indeed, whether she has a body such that she can sit anywhere at all. For all she knows at the start of her final meditation, she's a disembodied soul. However, in the sixth meditation, she argues that some of her thoughts and feelings, thoughts and feelings she clearly and distinctly perceives to exist in her mind, only make sense if she has a body as well as a mind. Take the feeling of pain, for instance. If the meditator were to stick her foot in the fire burning in her hearth, her consciousness would be filled with an intense, searing pain. And if she focused her intellect on that feeling, she would clearly and distinctly perceive that the feeling of pain came into her mind from the outside, in particular, from her body. Thus, she can know that it's true that she's embodied, as well as minded. That brings the meditator to consider an issue that's central to Descartes' thinking. And indeed, that's been central to a great deal of modern philosophy since Descartes. That's the issue of how our minds and our bodies relate. Philosophers often refer to this as the mind-body problem. Are our minds and bodies identical to each other? Are our minds just our brains? Or if not, is one more fundamental than the other? Do our minds emerge from our brains? Or as Aristotle thought, are our minds the forms, the manners of functioning of our bodies? Descartes thinks the answer to each of these questions is no. In order to develop his alternative answer, he as the meditator come up with a sort of corollary to the truth rule. Everything I clearly and distinctly perceive is true. So, if I can clearly and distinctly understand one thing without thinking about another, this is sufficient for me to be certain that the one is distinct from the other. Now, this corollary doesn't actually logically follow directly from the truth rule. But it makes sense that if you buy one, then you'd buy the other. The thought seems to be that if two things aren't really distinct, then you're going to have to understand both of them in order to clearly and distinctly understand either of them. This principle of Descartes is actually closely related to a principle that Aristotle employs in his work, De Anima. So Descartes would expect his readers to nod along here, even though, as always, Descartes ends up using the principle to refute rather than embrace Aristotle. Recall that back in the second meditation, the meditator realized that she could conceive of herself as being a disembodied mind. As I pointed out last episode, this wasn't a metaphysical point. It was an epistemological point. 
She wasn't actually just a disembodied mind, but she could understand that she had a mind without knowing whether or not she had a body. Now, in the sixth meditation, the meditator draws a metaphysical inference from that epistemological point. Metaphysically speaking, there must be a real distinction between body and mind. Given that the meditator can clearly and distinctly conceive of her mind without conceiving of her body, and vice versa. Here's how Descartes put the same argument in his later textbook, The Principles of Philosophy. Quote, Just from the fact that I clearly understand myself to be a thinking thing and can have a clear thought of myself as not involving any other substance, whether thinking or extended, It is certain that I, as a thinking thing, am really distinct from every other thinking substance and from every corporeal substance. And of course this applies equally to you and to everyone. We might suppose this. God has joined some corporeal substance to a thinking substance like you or me, joining them as closely and tightly as any two things could possibly be joined, compounding them into a unity. That could happen but the soul and the body would still be really distinct from one another. However closely God had united them, he couldn't lay aside his previous power to separate them, keeping one in existence without the other. And things that God has the power to separate, or to keep in existence separately, are really distinct. End quote. Descartes' argument here goes like this. First premise. I can clearly and distinctly perceive myself as a purely thinking thing. Second premise, if I can clearly and distinctly perceive myself as a purely thinking thing, then it's possible that my mind can exist without my body. Third and final premise, if it's possible that my mind can exist without my body, then my mind and body are really distinct. So, Descartes concludes, my mind and body are really distinct. By really distinct here, Descartes means that there's a metaphysical distinction between mind and body. They are fundamentally distinct substances. Indeed, he thinks they're the only two fundamental substances that exist. Mental substance is utterly immaterial. It must be, since it's really distinct from bodily substance. Mental substance is instead characterized by conscious and rational thinking. Bodily substance which includes all physical, material stuff, not just human bodies, is characterized by being extended in space. As you'll recall from last episode, according to Descartes' physics, all matter, including human and animal bodies, is made up of little atom-like corpuscles moving according to the laws of physics. So Descartes' dualist view was that conscious minds and material corpuscles are the only two things that exist besides God, and that they've got basically nothing to do with one another. Every other particular thing in the world, minerals, vegetables, animals, ideas, etc., is just a particular quality of either matter or of mind, or, in the case of human beings, of the union of and interaction between matter and mind. Enter Princess Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, Really great metaphysics you got there, Descartes. I agree with basically everything you said. Except, what was that last bit? I thought you mentioned interaction between mind and body. Mm, How exactly does that work? Descartes' laws of physics dictate how bits of matter interact with other bits of matter. By bumping into each other. 
and we have some clear intuitive sense of how our thoughts lead to other thoughts. But given that the two substances are really distinct, how on earth would mind and body interact with each other? When I stick my foot in a fire, I feel pain. But how? Are bits of matter supposed to be bumping into my immaterial soul, which, being immaterial, doesn't take up any space and thus should be intrinsically unbumpable? And when I decide to go for a walk, are my immaterial thoughts somehow propelling my material legs forward, even though my will has no physical presence? Does the idea of mind-body interaction make any sense at all? Descartes' attempts to defend his substance dualism against this objection of Elizabeth's are meek. We can talk about the arguments he does give in discussion later this week. But let's be honest, Descartes mostly just compliments Elizabeth, attempting to achieve with flattery what he seems unable to achieve with argument. Elizabeth isn't impressed, though she's very kind. So she proposes her own solution. What if Descartes' right that minds are importantly distinct from the rest of the world, but wrong that they're immaterial? What if, instead, the whole world is physical, except that minds are accretions of matter that God has imbued with one uniquely non-physical property, consciousness? What if your mind is just your brain, which, in its own right, is just a chunk of matter with a very special capacity, the capacity to think? Anyway, that's something to chew on. If you want to delve deeper into how philosophers have taken these important ideas of Elizabeth's and run with them, I invite you to sign up for the Philosophy of Mind course that I regularly teach here at WVU. In the meantime, let's turn to the philosophical problem lurking just beneath the surface of all of Descartes' writings, the apparent tensions between the worldviews supported by modern science, religion, and everyday life. In particular, next week we'll be moving on to the 18th century and the writings of David Hume on the ramifications of the scientific revolution for how people think about the relationship between faith and reason. Tune in then for our very own Dialogue Concerning Natural Religion on Episode 9 of Dialogues, Meditations, and Analysis.